real win this week. A win? Mm -hmm. What happened? There was something wrong with my computer at school. Mm -hmm. And I kept telling people, finally, the tech person came Mm -hmm. and acknowledged that there was, in fact, something wrong Mm -hmm. and had to send it to the higher-ups. Then the higher-ups sent me the same set of questions about what was wrong. And then I had to, like, screen share. And they, too, admitted that something was wrong. <laughs> like, I'm a millennial. I, I cleared my cash. I did all I the control things. control deleted. <laughs> I did everything. I went to task manager. I went and Googled my own tutorials on how to fix it. <laughs> like, I'm not asking you to come in and turn it off and turn it back on. Exactly. I've done it. Oh, my gosh. What a satisfying feeling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It felt so good when they were confused because they come on. They're yeah. like, okay, we'll do this, this, and this while I screen share. And then they were like, oh. Oh, well, that's interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, I yes, it is. know. Uh, it's like when my internet was out and I kept telling them, they're like, well, we'll just send a new signal to the modem. I was like, you don't understand. I told you 10 times. The modem isn't turning on. <laughs> they're like, was it plugged in? I'm like, of course it's plugged in. Like, why is it holier than thou i don't know <laughs> and like i understand they that like stupid people. they nine times nine out of ten of their calls every day are like is it plugged in did you turn it off and turn it back on i understand that <laughs> but like when the language you're using is like i have tried everything and it's still not working and they're still like but did you do the first thing that everyone thinks of? You're like, yes, it's infuriating. So I am very happy for you. What a great win. I felt great. (laughs) I felt really, really good. And did your computer get fixed? No, not yet. (laughs) In due time. But we're not here to talk about computers. This isn't Ada Lovelace podcast, whatever. We're here to talk about history. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. And we aren't historians. No. (laughs) But... We're good at drinking and we're good at Googling. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, the fact of the matter is we do all this research in a week. Sometimes we mess up. But we're telling you right now, we welcome your corrections. Like, we got Martha Stewart's, like, age wrong or something. Like, she is 80. (laughs) What what was it? By, like, three weeks. Yeah. (laughs) We said 79. She was 80 on August 3rd. She was 80. So it's just things like that. Or 8th. I don't know what day. You guys help keep us in check because sometimes the internet does us wrong. Yeah. So. But also, <laughs> send us, like, your cool things. This week yes. uh, and most recently, we've been getting in contact with a lot of cool ladies. So I got contacted by a new podcast coming out soon <gasps> called the Bad Women Podcast. So keep Ooh. your eyes on that. We're going to run a promo for it and put some things up on our social media. And then our longtime listener and patron Sarah W is starting an online like book club community (gasps) so fun very very soon so look out for details on that too she's gonna try to meet online with people once a month and I think their first book is me and white supremacy so there she really wants to like encourage like deep conversations
conversations about some of these things that are going on in the world. So ah. keep an eye on our social media because we're going to be promoing anybody who wants to just do something. Yeah, we get, love your projects. Get up and do a project. Ah, so exciting. Yeah. We love when you guys are doing things. So keep us in the loop. All right. But you're starting your own book club. You're getting the tea sandwiches ready. This one's in person. Not like Sarah's, which is online, but you know, you're doing things, you're busy. You don't have time to stop and Google these women to see what they look like. You don't, you just don't have the time, the patience, the energy. So we're going to describe what they look like so you can get a picture in your head while we're telling their story. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I'm doing Margaret Atwood, uh, the one and only. <laughs> Margaret is a white Canadian woman with a typically deep red or deep pink lip. Mm -hmm. She has beautiful cheekbones, an arched nose, and high arched eyebrows. And her signature is her tight white curly hair yes. that is just stunning. And it like looks the same every time. I like, know. It's her iconic signature thing and it is <laughs> just the greatest and also i heard that she loves to retweet people that tweeted her so this week we're looking at you margaret we're looking at you <laughs> <laughs> we will see we'll see we had um lisa simpson retweet us one time which yeah. was very exciting she <laughs> met Yardley, Yardley smith, smith. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we've, we've been retweeted by a by a couple uh Pretty notable, notable people. Yeah, it's been exciting. <laughs> it's always fun. All right, Who so are you doing? I am doing Mary Mallon, aka Typhoid Mary. She is a powerful, sturdy Irish woman. <laughs> she had a full face with a very cute but petite nose. She had dark hair, dark dark eyebrows. Her hair was typically kind of pulled up in a way like many women of the turn of the, turn of the century. Um, she would have been wearing high neck blouses with a full skirt and typically an apron because she was a cook. Um, and if she wasn't in that, she was in a hospital gown. <laughs> <laughs> um, we mainly see her in some cartoons and things like that. Like there's one picture of her in a hospital bed. Um, but mainly there are just kind of illustrations. I um, love the cartoons with like the skulls. Yeah. Like wafting out <laughs> it's like a she's like do like cooking in the pot and she's like you know doing like salt bay but there are like skulls instead of salt coming mm -hmm. out of her fingers it's great <laughs> it's great so that's what she looked like <laughs> so i think we need to dive into this drink because yes. it's like melting before it is melting <laughs> okay so this drink is called kind of fiction Ooh. <laughs> and it is Rum chata, vanilla vodka, and fireball <gasps> shaken together in a glass that has cinnamon sugar on the rim and a cinnamon stick in it poured over ice or on the rocks. So fun. Cheers. Cheers. Mm, I love a cinnamon cocktail. So good. Miss mm, Krista delightful. and Mr. Krista, we're looking at you this week. Which one's better? Because <laughs> Katie has a dessert cocktail too this week. I know. So we're really equal competitors this mm -hmm, week. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Um, I will say mine is going to take a little bit more equipment, but <laughs> <laughs> you are a high yeah. maintenance cocktail maker. Oh, I am. I love it. Our poor listeners. Okay. So what do you know about the 
famous, wonderful, perfect um, Margaret Atwood. Okay, I know she's a writer. I know that she wrote uh, Handmaid's Tale, which is like a future dystopian novel um, about where we're going to be at in a couple of years, uh, or at least the women of Texas. Um, (laughs) And uh, yeah, that's all I know is that she wrote Handmaid's Tale and that she's like a prolific writer. Yeah. That's it. I don't know anything else. And I mean, really, that is her story. Yeah. Um, There's so much incredible writing. So what I'm going to do is go through a list of the things that she's written. Okay. And go through like when it happened and what's going on in her life and then kind of move into her philosophies on life and philosophies of writing right afterwards. And am I wrong in the fact that, like, I feel like she's one of the few kind of, like, futuristic sci-fi female writers. I feel like it's a really male-dominated field. It is, and we'll touch on that a little bit because she didn't initially feel very comfortable writing the science fiction dystopian worlds. Okay. So that definitely is something she grew into. Okay. Yeah, because I know, like, I have a hard time with, like, books like that because they make me, like, so uncomfortable which I know is the point but (laughs) it was like what what's that book that I hate um the it's a sci-fi book that they make kids read Mindy Kaling and Oprah were in the movie oh 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 something Um, about a flower in space Mrs. what yes oh my gosh a wrinkle in time time. I hated that book I love that book it is very uncomfortable but I I love it what is going on (laughs) It's hard to read. But I liked uh, Handmaid's Tale a lot. I feel like because it was less like spacey and more just like what the hell is going on here on Earth. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because I mean, it's also like it's fun to read something like that. And we'll get into this when we talk about Handmaid's Tales. But it's interesting to read something like that being from a very religious um, family. Yeah. Because you see like morsels of it sprinkled throughout your life. Yeah. And you're like, well, if things went to shit, this is the possibility. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So Margaret Eleanor Atwood was born in Ontario, Canada as the second of three children. She was born on November 18th, 1839, amidst a world that's entering the Second World War in just a matter of, like, decades, right? And I don't mean, like, the Second World War. I mean, this is the second one that's happened in, like, a 20-year span. Yeah. So you've got her kind of entering Canada in this world kind of in shambles mm-hmm. with dictators and totalitarian governments kind of rising up all over the place. Her dad's name was Carl Atwood, and he was an entomologist, scientist, and her mom was Margaret Dorothy, and she was a former dietitian that was born in Nova Scotia. Because her dad was a scientist, Margaret spent much of her childhood in, like, the backwoods of northern Quebec. Mm. So I was reading an article that referred to it as bush country. And I've I've heard that phrase a lot on TV, but I don't know if that's, like, an insulting phrase or not. I don't think so because it is the bush. Like, I was thinking of this um, just because I I went on vacation with Casey's family this past weekend. And um, I have a hard time communicating with them sometimes. So I made them watch Alaskan bush people. Uh, <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> so I think the bush is just like dense wilderness. Okay. I think is what, so I don't think it's derogatory, okay. but That's also where she is, I would imagine they wouldn't let 
that be the name of the show if it was <laughs> yeah, let's say. let us know let us know please <laughs> let us know but it's very very rural is the point i'm trying to get across so she's spending a lot of her childhood there although their primary residence is in toronto mm. so she's kind of going back and forth but because of this and her dad doing his research out in like rural canada margaret And doesn't go to school very early. Hmm. So in the early years, she's not going to a traditional education. So she has a sister, Ruth, who's about 12 years older than her. And she has a brother who's about Harold, who's about two years younger than her. Um, Also, fun fact, their family was descended from 17th century witchcraft lynching (sighs) survivor named Mary Webster. And this woman is the subject of one of Atwood's um, poems that she wrote called Half Hanged Mary, which to me is like nearly hanged. (laughs) How can you be nearly hanged? Uh, But then also is referenced in the foreword of A Handmaid's Tale. Perfect. So very cool. She spent a lot of her time, even as a kid, writing. She apparently wrote like her first quote unquote novel at the age of seven, yet she didn't seriously resume her efforts until almost a decade later when she was a teenager. She did finally attend former schooling, formal schooling at the age of 12, but she loved to read regardless her entire childhood. She was big into Grimm's fairy tales and mysteries and animal stories, but especially comic books. She grew up in during World War II, which is the golden age of comic books. We've mm-hmm. covered so many um, comic book heroes from that, era, from that era in history. This love of her father's science and this magical world in the comic universes really do blend together in her brain, especially in terms of science fiction. So Margaret attended Leaside High School in Toronto, graduating in 1957. During high school is when she got her first taste for dystopian texts. So in an interview, she said that at drugstores back then, they would sell these deep, dark, dystopian future books with, like, cute, bouncy covers (laughs) to try to get the teens to buy them. So she was reading things like Fahrenheit 451 and Brave New World and Mm. 1984. And she says she still has her copy of 1984 with like its cute cover Ah! that she got from the the drugstore like around the block because they were just trying to get people to read them. Like now it's on the high school reading lists. But it wasn't always. Yeah. So when she's 16 years old, she realizes she wants to write professionally and she began studying at victoria college where she published poems and articles for their literary journal and participated in their theater program a bit and ends up graduating with her ba in english with a minor in philosophy and french she then began her studies at radcliffe college of harvard as a woodrow wilson fellowship member and got her master's and then pursued her doctorate for two years but didn't finish her dissertation which was called the english metaphysical romance and honestly the worst thing i ever did was not quit my dissertation program. <laughs> <laughs> so good on her <laughs> no don't say that oh my gosh <laughs> what a waste of time money effort <laughs> and energy <laughs> Uh, somebody asked me this week at school because they refer to me as Dr. Greenwood if um, 
if like they were thinking about pursuing their doctorate and I was like don't (laughs) (laughs) whatever you do don't do it (laughs) just reminds me of my cousin Julie (laughs) PhD no (laughs) not at all I'm done she told my grandmother over fourth of July that she wasn't pursuing her PhD and my grandmother just wrote PhD, no, Julie. <laughs> Next, she was taking notes on all of us, which is really sweet. She wanted it's to so remember. Sweet, <laughs> like in the best sense, she was reminding herself not to bring it up again. Oh yeah, she absolutely was, but it just seemed so brutal. We're just writing it down like that. PhD, no. <laughs> I love it, but yeah, good decision. All those do- dollar bills back in your bank account. <laughs> so. Margaret's first book was actually published as a pamphlet and it was called Double Persephone. And this is a poetry collection that she hand set herself. Cause like back, you know, before you're famous, you don't really have publishers like at your beck and call. Right. Early on, writing couldn't be her sole source of income. So Mm -hmm. she did a lot of teaching. She did lecturing at the university of British Columbia and then at, Sir George Williams University and then at the University of Alberta. So she's kind of all over Canada. And while working, she continues to write poetry and published multiple more small poetry collections and winning awards several times. One is the Talisman for Children, Speeches for Dr. Frankenstein, and Animals in the Country. She's kind of all over the place with writing, though. Atwood likes to ponder the behavior of people. She likes to celebrate the natural world. She likes to condemn materialism. She's very well read on a variety of genres. And she's very um, into science because of her dad. And she's a phenomenal writer, but a self-proclaimed terrible speller. So she is just kind of squeaking herself into all of these. She's a prose writer, really, more than anything. So in 1968, two big things happen in Margaret's life. She marries Jim Polk, an American, which who names their kid Jim Polk? J- James Polk is one of our presidents. Like, was he? Oh, yeah. Th- yeah, he definitely was by then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like, I was yeah. like, Allie, no, he wasn't president until 2005. Yeah, James K. Polk was definitely the president, like the 14th president, yeah. I think. Like two before Abe Lincoln or something like that. But, or 12th. Don't quote me. So <laughs> this is your opportunity. Correct us ah, on Instagram or Twitter, wow. whatever. <laughs> but yes. So she marries Jim Polk, not James Polk. And she also that year publishes her first novel. So she had been publishing poetry books, mm-hmm. um, collections for a while. And that novel is called The Edible Woman. Now, this is an interesting book. It's a story of a young woman who is dealing with like a consumer driven world and she starts to slip out of focus and following what she wants. She feels that her body and herself are becoming separated. So the main character, Marion begins endowing food, like her human body starts to become different foods. Like she's, she starts to turn into food as she identifies with it. And then she herself becomes unable to eat because of metaphorical cannibalism. This sounds like 
I don't know. Like, I don't know if maybe this is the intention, but it kind of sounds like an allegory for like eating disorders. Cause like, I didn't really know much about them. And I listened to a thing on NPR recently. And I actually have a friend who's an eating disorder counselor. And I didn't really think about how much it affects people's like daily struggles of like literally like every time you go to eat something, it is like a big deal. Like, I don't know. And I feel like that's maybe people can find connection with this character of like, it's a mental thing at this point. Like, you know, like you, I don't know. It's just, that's a really weird and interesting concept and for... a weird interesting first novel for yeah. somebody to be like this woman's gonna turn into food and then not want to eat so what year is this this is in the 1960s the 60s the 60s her first book is being published and like that would be an interesting time because like i don't think anyone's really talking about eating, eating disorders. disorders and like people and like maybe it had nothing to do with that but i feel like you could find some connections between it she's very purposeful on her works connecting with like things that are happening in real life Mm -hmm. so one of her things and we'll talk about it with the handmaid's tale is that she didn't want to publish anything in the handmaid's tale that hasn't happened somewhere in the world at some time so every single thing in it has happened she has reference points like oh shit so she's very specific in like she will sometimes call it science fiction, but sometimes call it like suspended reality fiction because mm. it's things that happen, but aren't quite happening. Okay. So she's very, she's trying to make a statement, but also be an artist at the same time. But it's very clear that she's not an activist and we'll get to that. Okay. She's a very interesting person. <laughs> I love Most of my sources were listening to interviews with her because she's not the type of person that writes like a tell-all. Yeah. She wants her art to speak for itself, not for like her to be like, I was born in da 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 da. Like that's not her thing. She's she's a true artist. Okay. Metaphorical cannibalism is where we left off. (laughs) So now we're going to move into the 70s and it becomes more and more obvious that she's a prose writer. I have always thought of her as a novelist, so I had no idea about all this poetry. I knew she wrote, like, 15 novels or something like yeah. that, but I didn't know about the poetry stuff. Oh, is that what prose means? Poetry? Yes. Okay. It, I think prose is, like, the way in which you're writing, like, the okay. way in which you're speaking. Like, it has a, like, you know, when they're like, are you writing it in iambic pentameter? pentameter? Okay. Like, yeah, the way that you write it has, like, a flow. So I think a novel could technically be written in prose, but it it has to flow in a certain way. Okay. Somebody can correct that. Any English teachers out there, correct me if I'm wrong. Please. That's my very, very (laughs) generic understanding of what prose means. Okay. So in the 70s, she publishes another six collections of poetry and also three novels, um, Suffering, Lady Oracle, and Life Before Man, which all explore identity, social construction of gender as they relate to topics regarding sexual politics. So this is something that we'll see a lot with her is trying to navigate sexual politics when that was not a phrase yet. Right. It's just like having your formative years during World War II and then your early adult years during uh, second wave feminism is having an impact on her, you know. Okay, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> but then she does something a little out of the ordinary. She published a nonfiction monograph called Survival, a thematic guide to Canadian literature. And this really established her as an emerging voice in the field. Because she's like, I'm a Canadian. I'm a great writer. I publish all this shit. So I'm going to like 
publish a nonfiction text about how to navigate the themes of Canadian literature. Interesting. I've never even heard the term Canadian literature, to be honest. No offense to Canada. It's just like- Margaret Atwood. <laughs> how to navigate my books. <laughs> Scale of one to ten. I love it. <laughs> Sorry, Canada. That was Sandra so Sandra Oh, get on it. Like- <laughs> Where's Ryan Reynolds when you need him? <laughs> write a book, Bieber. why don't you? <laughs> get your books. Oh, my God. We're so terrible. We love you, Canada. Brendan Fraser? (laughs) Be honest, wish I was there. Um. (laughs) Oh, yes. Okay. So now there's just so much attention around her and her interesting writing in many different forms. And she becomes, quote, Canada's most gossiped about writer. (laughs) What? Gossip. I wasn't expecting gossip in this story. Tabloid me, girl. (laughs) During the 70s, she also has some big changes in her family. First, she does get a divorce from good old Jimmy Polk, Mm. but fairly quickly has a new relationship with, cannot pronounce his name, Gibson. Okay. Oh, okay. Write this down. Are you ready? I will. G-R. Oh, I put a J. Okay. (laughs) I do a lot. G-R. A-E-M-E. What is that? Graham? 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 Graham. Grammet? He might be from French Canada. I don't know. Graham? We'll call him if it's Mr. French? Gibson. <laughs> Mr. Gibson. <laughs> We're terrible. Okay. So I wanted to acknowledge. I've never heard of that name before. I That's very either. interesting. And I is that to... Canadian name? I don't know. I tried to look up online how to pronounce it and they couldn't even help me. Wow. The whole wide web. Wow. Couldn't help me. So he's a gram in a million. (laughs) (laughs) Don't put him in water after midnight. Okay. So Mr. Gibson and the two move into a farm together and they soon have a child named Eleanor. So this is like big Mm. family changes and a baby. Love the feminist idea of like giving her first name as your middle name. Yeah. I love that. It's really nice. It's kind of like how we don't really talk about the fact that Lorelai named Rory after herself, which I think is amazing because it's, it's, it's a, so common in men. Yeah. And it's also like a very monarchical decision. Yeah. Like I'm Queen Elizabeth, you're Queen Elizabeth. You're, you know what I mean? It's very interesting when your your bloodline runs through your women. I mm-hmm. love that. I feel like somebody we did last week did that. I can't remember. Oh, one of the Bronte girls, I think, yes. was named after her, their mother. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm doing two writers in a row. Look at me. Oh, my gosh. I'm in. Okay. But this is a Canadian writer, not a Bronte girl. Not a Bronte (laughs) bitch, as we say. Okay. So now we are to the 80s. And they are quite a time for Margaret. She never quite seems to peak. It seems like she is speeding uphill and the best is yet to come. Hmm. Like everything she writes is just like, well, that's the next best thing. So she, in the 80s, deals with a lot of role reversal and new beginnings, and themes in her novel are about women and their relationships with the world and the individuals around them. Now, she did continue to teach throughout the 80s, but said, quote, success for me meant no longer having to teach at a university. Because for Margaret, teaching was paying the bills, but writing was her job. Yeah. So once she could make enough money to not have to teach anymore, then she was successful, which you do teach a master class now, girl. So 
I see you on those YouTube commercials. I see them. I see them. Don't lie to me. <laughs> Successful as fuck. And you're still teaching master classes. Sad. <laughs> so her novels in the 80s kept people's brows arising. She wrote <laughs> bodily harm and cat's eye. And people really responded to cat's eye because the novel focused on a young artistic girl who grew up in the midst of World War II and whose father was an entomologist. <laughs> what? Hmm. <laughs> Margaret rarely, if ever, comments on the semi-autobiographical elements and insists that people are reading too much into it. <laughs> okay. okay okay she's so coy is she also from canada <laughs> does she have two siblings <laughs> so in 1985 though 1985 she writes a handmaid's tale she must have done that on purpose as an homage i feel like she was holding that one in the chamber for me for ev- <laughs> for the world for the world <laughs> Oh, I th- are you referencing your birthday? Oh, yeah. Oh, I was referencing referencing the George Orwell book, 1985. Oh, <laughs> uh, but the George Orwell book's 1984. Damn. Ah. All right. It's okay, but then I was born in 1986. I'm an idiot. No, this Split the difference. The Split, Split the, the difference, difference between Split the, difference. the two of you. It's you, perfect. You and George Orwell. <laughs> and me, Margaret. Me, George Orwell. <laughs> I should put up an Instagram post with the three of us. <laughs> place together okay people let me tell you about my best friend <laughs> exactly okay so not only is a handmaid's tale really well written like it has very alluring vocabulary and you can follow it you can like a lot of science it. fiction books you can't follow they're difficult yeah but this one it's also like a first for Atwood in the terms of science fiction or what she calls speculative fiction because it is dystopian and scientific at the same time. She always said that when I was growing up reading things like 1984 and as an adult, I didn't feel comfortable writing those things. I didn't Mm -hmm. feel like it was my space to be in. But there's definitely a radical political religious takeover oh also if you haven't read a handmaid's tale or consumed any of the media i'm gonna do a rundown there's gonna be spoilers but get your life together (laughs) like i don't understand where you've been at right right? it yes okay so there has been a radical political religious takeover of the united states in which women are denied freedom to read write own property handle money most importantly, they're denied the right to control over reproductive functions. The story focuses on a firsthand narrative of a woman named Alfred. And because of pollution and radiation, there are very few fertile women left. So she is forcibly assigned to produce children with a commander. And the women have a dress code commander's wives in blue who are not fertile ants in brown they train the handmaids martha's in green who are like the housekeepers eco wives in stripes unmarried women in white widows in black of course the handmaids are in the iconic red robes with a white veil over their face as the story goes on offred starts an illegal relationship with her commander where he has these intellectual meetings with her and he eventually takes her to a brothel called the jezebels so we also learn about this underground resistance called the mayday resistance and the eyes of god raid their house and offred is taken but the book ends there 
mm-hmm. which is something that's really interesting because the show does it a little different, but we're not sure if she's taken into imprisonment by the government or to safety by the Mayday resistance. And it's really unsettling because the last chapter is people listening to Offred's cassette tapes in a college class. Like she mm-hmm. had been recording herself and they're listening to it a hundred years later. What is your take on the realism of a hands ma- handmaid's tale? <sighs> the thing that and we'll got talk about me, the show in a minute. Yeah. The thing that got me when I was reading it is that, like, you know, you're kind of, I think from what I remember, cause I read it years ago and I haven't seen the show is like, you're kind of getting these like flashbacks as to like how it was, but she's forgetting. And like, she almost like forgets like how to read because like they like the thing that got me was like she's like walking around town doing her errands and there's like no words anywhere it's just like pictures and stuff and like I feel like in an increasing like picture age I worry about this kind of thing you know what I'm saying like not worries that I really think it's gonna happen but like that struck me like taking away words from people and reading and complex thought because I don't know it like I don't know it was like really scary that like also like the whole catalyst was like you don't have control over your body so then you don't have control over your mind right you know like just the basic necessities are taken away and then you don't even recognize your world anymore right and it's just the notion of somebody um forcibly having to bear children mm-hmm. which we don't often yeah. say it in that way mm-hmm. we say like pro-life pro-choice yeah but i mean pro-life is forcibly telling somebody how to use their body absolutely it's forced birth right which is atrocious and that's what happens like throughout this book mm-hmm. in a very i mean it's a very there's lots of biblical references, which of course I'm hot and heavy for. <laughs> and there's, it's just really an interesting way to handle this. And then also in terms of the pictures, I've always thought that emojis, it's weird, but like emojis, I feel like are replacing things like hieroglyphics because yeah. you know what? You can't translate hieroglyphics because it means more than one thing. Yes. It's like, it doesn't equate to an alphabet. It equates to a feeling an yeah. idea. And it's the same way. I feel like with, um, like Eastern Asian characters, mm-hmm. they mean an idea, not a letter. Yeah. So it's very neat the way that the book is tying all these things together. Yeah. I do want to talk about the show for a minute. I'm going to jump ahead because I don't want to necessarily come full back to The Handmaid's Tale. So in 2017, Hulu put out a show. Now, there was already a movie. She's great at adapting things. Mm -hmm. Like, all of her movies have been adapted. But they are all her books and plays, whatnot. They really wanted a female show writer. And it ended up being a guy who really fought for the job. He was like, I've read this book multiple times. I really wanted it. I knew they were dead set on finding a woman. And if they had found the right woman, I would have been so happy. But, like, I fought for this job. Wow. Because I wanted it. Okay. So he was pretty cool. And I think the show gave Margaret and him a chance to explore the universe more. Mm -hmm. Because the book is from a single narrative of Offred, and she can't read, and she can't ask questions. Yeah. So we don't have anything else. Whereas the show can go into where's her daughter? Is her husband dead? What's happening with the resistance? And they said they, Hulu had been really respectful about putting 
pretty much everything they wanted on TV. Like they didn't want it to just be like trash porn because there are scenes that are like very pornographic. Like mm -hmm. there are intense, weird dystopian sex scenes. But the one thing they really fought back on was showing the menstrual blood leaking through a woman's undergarments. Hmm. And they were like, we don't understand. <laughs> Why is that the thing? Isn't I, that weird to you? That is so irritating to me <laughs> because it's like you'll literally have Cersei Lannister walking through the streets being pelted with crap, you know, whatever, and you can't show blood on underwear. It's yeah, it's kind of like my whole thing with like I kind of have always hated that they make the liquid blue. In That's what she brought up. In the oh, she? <laughs> she brought it up. She was like, "This is ridiculous." She's like, "We're all it's like literally just a color at that point. We're all adults. We're all adults." And also, it's like it's a natural part of life for a lot of people. Like, so you're telling me that like people who menstruate won't like, will be like, I didn't want to see that. Like, and also it's important for people who don't menstruate to see that. To like, understand what's going on. Yeah. Because it shouldn't be hidden away. And like, I, that's so frustrating. It is frustrating. Why is that the thing? I, I mean, I, I was like gagging back at the scene where like she has to lay on the bed and the commander's wife has to hold her wrists while yeah. like the commander has sex with her. I'm mm -hmm. like, this is really uncomfortable and restraining and I absolutely hate it. When the girl got her period, all I was thinking was like, oh my God, she's going to get in trouble that she's not pregnant. Yeah. I wasn't uncomfortable about it because no. who hasn't had blood in their underwear? Right. And also, let's be clear, this isn't a bodily function thing because I feel like, you know, there's that... Oh, like it's not an accident it's not you didn't pee yourself yeah because we show pee we show poop which will come about my story um but <laughs> yes but you know like i'm thinking like there's that famous like jackass prank where they put britney spears in a porta potty and had like shit and piss like raining down on her right so it's not that we know it's not that and of course it wasn't real but right. like we know it's not that then. It's menstruation. It's menstruation. It, the fact that people are uncomfortable with it. Men. It, the fact that men are uncomfortable yeah, with it. Like, yeah. You know why? It's something they can't do. <laughs> well, I love... I'll say most men. There yeah. are men that menstruate. Yes. And I do love... One of the first texts we read in like women's studies classes was this piece. I can't remember who wrote it. I wish I could, but it was called If Men Could Menstruate. And this is whole thing about how they would be talking about like how heavy their flow was and how like <laughs> if your flow was heavier than like it meant you were better. And like, you know, they would be like whipping their things out for like, you know, like their tampons, and their pads or whatever for like everyone to see to be like, look how much I menstruate. Look how loaded like, it is. Look how fertile <laughs> I am. Like, <laughs> but, so dumb. But it is this thing of like women have to put that stuff away or like people who menstruate have hide to it. put it away mm -hmm. and hide it. And like people like, it's just, it's very frustrating to me. It is. That, and I found that to be really interesting because that it was the male showrunner that brought 
brought it up. He was like, I, I couldn't believe this yeah. is the thing we had to fight for. Yeah. And it was funny to see it through his eyes in yeah. the interview because he was like, wow, I didn't even think it was an issue. It's just some blood. There's blood like pouring Everywhere. all over people, like in, in action we, movies. <laughs> we'll literally show someone slitting someone's throat open and right. blood pouring everywhere. Right. But blood on underwear, we literally cannot have <laughs> not a, in today in 2017 in 2017. <laughs> insane okay so in the 1990s margaret started playing with some ideas of anti-heroes she wrote alias grace and the robber bride and these books are very different in context but they both question the ideas of good and evil in human behavior and women are portrayed as villains mm. and she said quote i'm not making a case for evil behavior but unless you have some women characters portrayed as evil characters you're not playing the full range preach yeah true we talk about that all the time that's why we cover bad women good women like, bad women fictional yeah. women and non-fictional women from all types of places because bad women have nuance yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but alias grace is a book which i want you to look into this for me alias grace is a book about an 1843 murder of thomas kinner and his housekeeper nancy and she had previously written a sh written a show about it for cbc called the servant girl about grace mark who was convicted of those murders so there's like a girl who murders this guy and his housekeeper okay. and it's like a true story but she did like a fictionalized version about oh, it interesting in and you love murder i do not doing it but reading about it mm-hmm Throughout the 2000s, Margaret gets on a lot of kicks in her writing. She writes things like The Blind Assassin, The Year of the Flood, Mad Adam, The Penelopad, which is like Penelope and Olympiad combined, hmm. um, and Hagseed. And these books are groupings. She does a retelling of Shakespeare's Tempest is one of them. One of them, The Penelopad, is the retelling of The Odyssey. The others are fictions and have these dark religious undertones and like strong gender politics. She's like really playing with Bible literature like she's done in the past. Mm -hmm. She is a full, full life of fiction writing, but continues to push her boundaries on the side. She publishes a book called Payback about debt. Hmm. And it's just like, it's a nonfiction about how like debt's ruining society and like how it causes emotional issues. She commissioned an opera and did that on the side. She also wrote a graphic novel in this time because, you know, she loved comic books. And all of her writing centers around a few things. I want to talk about some of her philosophies. One, Canadian identity, super important to her. She considers Canadian literature to be really true to what's happening in the country. She displays a love-hate relationship with Canada and their relationship with imperial cultures like the U.S. and the U.K. And she has people who are interacting with the environment in a physical, emotional, and mental way on a regular basis. And I can imagine living in, a, in like the rural bush country of Canada really connects you with the world around you, right? Like you understand nature in mm -hmm. a deep way. She also frequently connects in her books animals and people she has some books where there's genetic alterations of animals and humans and they talk about the ethics and the technology behind that 
in Surfacing, which is one of her books, she openly says, we raise animals to kill them, then we stuff them in cans, and then we eat the death that we've created. She is a pescatarian. <laughs> she eats crustaceans and occasional fish, but nothing with fur or feathers, she says. <laughs> and then in the cat's eye, there's a dead turkey, and this woman notices it reminds her of a baby human. So she's very clear in her writing that, like, these animals are, like, we're raising them to kill them, and they're kind of just like people. Hmm. They're helping our society. She's also, in terms of politics, considers herself a red Tory, which is one of the Canadian political parties. She says the Tories were the ones who believed that those in power had a responsibility to the community and that money should, be, should not be the measure of all things. She openly argued people during the election to vote for no, any non-conservative candidate, as we've seen happen in the United States and the UK and Brazil and several other places. We've had some extreme conservative candidates recently. And she typically takes environmental concerns into account when she's voting uh, and puts her hands and dollar bills on the notion of saving the environment. Because of her TV series, A Handmaid's Tale, that came out in 2007 during the Trump candidacy and election, many people believed it to be a part of a Canadian anti-American literature media movement. What? <laughs> but it was written in 1985. What? So, like, it had nothing to do with that. Also, people believe that the book directly was attacking Donald Trump. But if you can connect what? the dots... She wasn't attacking him. He was just doing the fucking things that were in the book. <laughs> like This book that was written in the 80s. <laughs> Nothing what? to do with you, my man. Also, if you're seeing the connections, it probably means that, like, he's just a fucked up person. There's probably a problem. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, there's a problem. <sighs> and because of that, the red outfit and white veil has been worn in recent years in many U.S. women's rights rallies, pro-choice rallies, etc., etc., but Margaret and feminism have taken a really interesting journal together. Her journal. Journey. 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 <laughs> I'm drunk. It's fine. Her first novel, The Edible Woman, was called a feminist novel. And she, remember, this came out in the 60s. She initially said, no, I don't consider it feminist. I consider it social realism. But remember, at that time, the word feminism is kind of poison to you. Yeah. Like, if you get labeled as a feminist, you kind of get labeled as a villain, kind of like Gloria Steinem. Like, I, was, I was just going to say that. In that place. No, it's like, and I feel like in the world's eyes, you're either, like, you know, Doris Day or Gloria Steinem. There is no in-between exactly. at this time. There's no gray. It's you are this woman or this woman. Yeah. She later clarified her words. Not to say that Doris Day isn't a feminist, too. Right. I don't know. She's just about a her. different, yeah. She's just a different, like, um, brand of woman, exactly. I would say. If you were going to genre women, mm -hmm. Doris Day is on the opposite of the number line as Gloria Steinem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So she later clarified and said, I always want to know what people mean by the word feminism. Some people mean it quite negatively, other people mean it very positively. So. Oh, some people mean it in a broad sense. Other people mean it in a specific sense. Therefore, in order to answer the question, you have to ask the person what they mean. So, like, don't ask me if I'm a feminist without qualifying what you think the definition of feminism yeah. is. Good point. Because then she said, 
for instance, some feminists have historically been against lipstick or letting transgender women into female washrooms. Those are positions I don't agree with. Yeah. So there is like a very, there's a scaffold of what feminism means. And she's mm-hmm. like, don't ask me if my novel was meant for feminism without telling me what you think feminism is. Yeah. Which is a good it's a good point. Yeah. yeah. It's a great point. And then she also says a handmaid's tale was written about totalitarian government, not feminism. Yeah. Now, do totalitarian governments and theocracies often put women down? Yes, because theocracies are based on the Bible and the Bible puts women down. That's something we can't escape. Yeah. Like, it's just the way it's written yeah. because of the time period it was written in, yeah. a.k.a. 2000 slash 4,000 years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just is what it is. She also had to write an op-ed piece called Am I a Bad Feminist? <laughs> because of some backlash she got. Now, she did sign a petition for further investigation of firing a man named Stephen Galloway, and he had been a professor at one of the universities she had taught at, and it was a sexual harassment case. And a lot of white feminist critics got on her for this, but she is openly saying, I didn't say he didn't do it. I just want to do process. And it's the same thing she got backlash on about the Me Too movement. She was very clear in saying that she thinks the Me Too movement is a symptom of a broken legal system, which it is. If the legal system worked, we wouldn't have to have a huge movement about believing women. Yeah. So I think that, like, people have been, and I don't know all the details, but I think people have been very willing to jump on her because she's trying to toe this middle line. Well, and I feel like she's trying to make broader points. Right. And, uh, well, actually, well, no, I think she's trying to make more fine-tuned points. A specific point about the Me Too movement. Right. Yeah, yes. and it's like, let's look at this from all sorts of perspectives. Like, let's not blanket things. I feel like she's saying that, like... I guess. I- yeah, but she's saying don't give in to the clickbait. Yeah. Like, you can't just sit on Twitter and see a couple tweets and then be like, oh, that person's canceled. It's kind of yeah. like we talked about in our patron episode about cancel culture. There yeah. is more fine-tuned detail that needs to be applied to every situation. Yeah, absolutely. So this is where she is in life. In short, when she was asked if she was an activist, she said, I am, of course, not a real activist. I'm simply a writer without a job who's frequently asked to speak about subjects that would get other people fired from their jobs if they spoke about them themselves. Wow. Yeah. So because she's kind of self-employed, she has the ability to do this. In 2019, Margaret's partner, Mr. Gibson, (laughs) that she had had a life with since the 70s, passed away after his battle with dementia. Mm. She wrote about this in her poem dearly which is accompanied by an essay on grief and published in the guardian in 2020 there's also an audio version of the reading of the poem so if you are a new widow or an old widow or widower this might be of some comfort to you because she's an excellent writer also in 2019 after the success of her hulu series she announced a sequel to a handmaid's (gasps) tale and she wrote it It's called The Testament, and it takes place 15 years after Alfred gets picked up and follows three women from that period of time in, like, the Gilead era. Mm -hmm. She also is an inventor. What? 
During the 2000s, she invented the long pen, which is a remote robotic writing technology that enables people to remotely write in ink anywhere in the world. Thus, she can sign someone's book without being in front of them. What? Isn't that cool? Wait. So do they have to have this pen? No, she has to have the pen, and I think they have to have their book near a technology source. Okay. But then she can sign, like, the inside cover of that book. Okay, so if that was at, like, a Barnes & Noble. And she wasn't there. And she wasn't there. She could still physically sign your book. Wow. That's so crazy. Yeah, and she holds the patent. There we go. (laughs) You know what? Why not? Um, Finally, and this is what I think is the coolest. She wrote a novel called Scribbler Moon. And Atwood, with this novel, became the first contributor to the Future Library Project. She wrote it in 2015 and sent it to the Future Library Project. The project does not allow books to be published for a hundred years. What? So Margaret said, there's something really magical about, about this. It's like my book is Sleeping Beauty. She's <gasps> going to sleep for a hundred years. So in the year 2114, long after the death of her and us, the book Scribbler Moon will be published for the first time and a whole new generation of people will get to attain the first words of Margaret Atwood. <gasps> I have goosebumps. Oh, my God. That's so cool. It's so cool. Can we buy advanced copies for our grandkids? <laughs> um, and Margaret's currently in her 70s, and that's her story. Wow. Newest novel yet to come in 100 years. Wow. That's insane. <laughs> I mean, just a writer through and through. Really? like a And a person who I feel like has made, above all else, like, writing and the artistry of writing her identity which i think is so incredible that is amazing what a cool person she's never gonna get to hear reviews of her novel good (laughs) (laughs) i just like i would die if i wrote a book i thought was great because you're not gonna send a shitty one to 100 years from now definitely not it's got to be one that she's like super proud of yeah oh my god so cool All right. Well, we need to get some more cocktails, and we'll be right back with part two. So long. It's the coldest of cold cases. Five women murdered and mutilated in Victorian London. But trust me, everything you think you know about Jack the Ripper and his victims is wrong. I'm historian Hallie Rubenhold, and when I went back into the records, it became clear that the real story of those murdered women is richer and far more disturbing than we'd ever been told. Listen to Bad Women, The Ripper Retold, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Being crazy! Crazy as bitch! Okay. We're oh back. My gosh. We're back with part two. Uh, we're not talking about novels. We're talking about... Poison. 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 No, epidemics. Like, yes, epidemics. So not we're, poison. We're in the thick of it. Yes. Yeah, so this is a really timely one, and I know that a lot of people have been kind of talking about Typhoid Mary because we're in the midst of COVID still. Um, so this is a really fun one. Uh, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> I am too. I'm excited about this drink. Yes. Do you want to know what it is? 
I really, really do. It took a lot of effort to make it, it happen. Did. Um, so this is called Peachy Keen Fever. <laughs> <laughs> so it is two ounces of spiced rum, an ounce and a half of butterscotch liqueur, and fresh peaches and vanilla ice cream. You put all that in a blender and you blend it together and you pour it into a glass and you top it with brown sugar and just let it melt on the top. And of course, a fresh peach. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Can't reach each other anymore. <laughs> we have a new table. We're so far apart. Mm. Mm. I mean, it is a. It's a boozy milkshake for sure. It is. I feel like I'm drinking a peach cake. Mm-hmm. It's great. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. I also love this like kind of crunchy brown oh, yeah. sugar top. Oh, it's you nice. can you can really dig into the uh, brown sugar. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. So what do you know about Typhoid Mary? So I believe that Typhoid Mary carried an illness but did not present the illness Mm -hmm. and i think she was a chef or a cook or a maid and Mm -hmm. therefore got people sick Mm -hmm. because she had the germs but didn't present the germs Mm -hmm. but i honestly i I, i'm assuming spanish flu era but i don't actually know exactly the era exactly like what pandemic slash epidemic she was a part of so I'm very interested to learn her entire story because all I know is they had to like put her in quarantine yeah. <laughs> in a hospital because she kept like fucking killing people by accident. That's exactly it. <laughs> so I got most of my information from history chicks. They did a great deep dive into her um, Wikipedia, obviously a biographics, YouTube video and drunk history has a fantastic <laughs> recreation of Mary Mallon. <laughs> I mean, also, though, like, honestly, if you guys want to listen to us without the sidetracks and the cussing, History Chicks oh, is ready it. to go. That's right. it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mary Mallon was born on September 23rd, 1860 time. <laughs> 1860 time? 1860 time. Uh, <laughs> when all crazy women were born. Um, in Cookston County, Tyrone, in Northern Ireland. Cookston County, Tyrone, in Northern Ireland. <laughs> I think is how that's supposed to be said. I'm leaving all that in. All of it. Staying. Please leave all of it. Uh, her parents were John and Catherine Mallon. Uh, she may have had one older brother, but we don't really know much about her family or her early life. Um, we know that her family was a poor working class family in Ireland. Mary did go to public school when she was a child uh, and apparently had very good handwriting and was very good at math. But that's all we know (laughs) until she immigrated to the United States at the age of 15 all by herself. She's the only member of her family to come. Young. I I could not. How? I don't know. I mean, just completely alone, except for the hundreds of thousands of Irish immigrants looking for a better life. Oh, my God. How Heidi Klum of her to come as a teenager. So she came. She moved in with her aunt and uncle in New York and immediately started working as a domestic servant. 
but soon her uncle passed away and she needed to find a new place to live. Like her aunt couldn't just put her up by herself. So she started seeking out some families who needed a live in domestic servant. And she was a good one to have because she could kind of do it all. She could do laundry. She could sew, cook and clean. But as time went on, she became known as one of the best cooks in New York. So Exactly. Where typhoid fever, typhoid fever <laughs> is <from>. rampant. <laughs> Thank you, Alicia Keys. That's what I needed. We love you. Um. So word gets around that she's a really good cook, and soon she lands a really nice gig cooking for a family who is summering in Mamaroneck, New York. In Westchester. Everyone in New York is so mad at me for mispronouncing that. But soon she becomes people's go to personal chef for when they go on vacation, which vacay cook, vacay cook, which is a really fun job to have, I imagine. Yo, that's I mean, my job. Maybe it's miserable, but <laughs> no, I think it would be actually fun if you were doing it for someone else. But if you're also trying to cook and vacation, yeah, like I have a friend who has a friend, which I know is so third degree and lame, but who is a personal chef for a very famous person and like goes on vacation. And she was like, it's actually very stressful because like if the kids come down and like, you have every sunship but the one they want, like but the French onion, then you've done your job wrong. Excuse me, where are the <laughs> where are the blue cool ranch Doritos? Whoa. I didn't want flame and hot Cheetos. I wanted ranch Cheetos. Like just Excuse if me, there don't give anything, me Pringles in a can. Yeah. <laughs> I want them in a bag. <laughs> I want them in my personal Pringles container that was purple and sparkly. I, I don't know if anybody else had those, but they were great. never. I have <laughs> never with that level of insanity. I loved it. So she's doing this for a few years, and she kind of keeps getting stolen away by families willing to pay her more because people love her food. Ooh, any of. Um, and they especially love her specialty which was homemade vanilla ice cream served with fresh peaches, which is the inspiration for this. So I made it into a milkshake. Um, I was going to just like pour it over a scoop of ice cream, but then I was like, I did that for Ada Blackjack. So I want it to look a little different. Mm. Um, So I did a milkshake, but this is inspired by her signature dessert of peaches and vanilla ice cream. Perfect. So, She's bopping around to different families, and in August of 1906, she starts working for the very wealthy Warren family. Charles Warren was the vice president of a huge bank in Manhattan where people like the Vanderbilts kept their money. So these people were like the toast of the town. I mean... They like were having tea in the rainbow room. Exactly. Right. So seeing as they were very wealthy, they, of course, summered in oyster bay in long island which was a really fancy schmancy neighborhood i mean this is, is that where hamptons i guess so Whatever. <laughs> who actually as knows long as you're out on the other end of the island yeah as long as you're like somewhere out not in somewhere manhattan <laughs> i mean this is where the summer white house of teddy roosevelt was so this mm-hmm. is the kind of company they're keeping yo is his daughter on our list Teddy Roosevelt's daughter? Yeah. I don't know, but I saw something about her this week, and I was like, we definitely need to cover I her. I mean, she's an insane woman. I yeah. just, I can't believe she, I'm, I'm sure she's been requested. Mm-hmm. But she's like a nutter butter. We got to do her. So they're 
hanging out, enjoying their summer, when suddenly the family gets really sick. They have high fevers, headaches, chills, diarrhea. Like, what could this be? So they call for a doctor. They're like, what is going on here? What do we have? And he says, you have typhoid fever. So can you explain typhoid fever? I will do that just now. Okay. Typhoid fever is called by a bacteria called Salmonella typhi. And it's usually passed around like via contaminated food or water or close contact with an infected person. Symptoms include, of course, fever, fatigue, headache, but then the worst comes in with the belly aches and the diarrhea. So like, Apparently, like, you kind of think you're out of the woods, and then you get, like, this horrible, like, gut infection. Like, so it is, is not it salmonella? It's or a, is it it's related? In the, it's related. It's in the salmonella family. Okay. Um, and so, like, nowadays, we've basically taken care of this problem with antibiotics and vaccines and, of course, clean sewer systems and basic hygiene (laughs) not pooping on others faces exactly because the most common way it spreads is through fecal matter and Mm. people not washing their hands and people like and and, you know bad sewer systems that infect the water singing the alphabet three times when she Mm. washed her hands she wasn't even saying it once so mary this is why (laughs) so this is why the warrens are shocked and appalled they couldn't believe it typhoid that's a disease that poor people get who are like living in tenements with contaminated water all on top of each other disgusting the wealthy and privileged like don't get this like they literally are like we make too much money to get typhoid and it's just it's upsetting it's embarrassing and they just couldn't figure out how something like this could happen to people like them thankfully everyone in the house did recover um they just went home to manhattan because they're like well it certainly couldn't be us so it must be the house this like dirty dirty beach house had bed bugs yeah <laughs> which was not good for the owner of the house because they were renting this house like they weren't owners they were renting oh. so the guy is really bummed out because this is his main source of income renting his like family home to wealthy New Yorkers and every they're probably summer supposed to be there all summer long. Yeah. And they're like, give me my money back. We're dying. Exactly. And now his house is known as the dirty typhoid house. And people just didn't want to stay there because I can't express enough how this was supposed to be like a poor person, dirty person disease. Right. And then journalists get a hold of this story and they're writing about this house saying that like, oh, it must be hooked up to dirty, contaminated water and like don't vacation there. So the owner, George Thompson, goes on a mission to clear his name and his house. So he hires some people to just test everything in the house for typhoid to discover the source. This is like your job. Yeah. This is like literally what you do for a living. Yeah. Except I... It's mine's weirder. Yours is invisible because <laughs> yeah. it's radon. <laughs> well, this is kind of invisible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just bacteria, right? Yeah. So they test every last corner of the house and they go deep into the plumbing system, but everything comes back negative. There's no typhoid in the house. So then they kind of start turning on people in the neighborhood. They're like, well, it must have been the milkman or the gardener or the clam shucker. I bet he put 
clams, like got his clams all typhoidy and oh then God, gave them like, to us. It's like, like when one person in third grade gets lice. Exactly. <laughs> I bet it was that dirty kid. Oh, so, I mean, it's like a game of Clue, but for like disease. <laughs> so everything is ruled out. They literally chase every one of these leads, the milkman, the gardener, the clam shucker, and nothing is coming positive. Mr. Thompson is so frustrated because unless they find out what caused this and eliminate it, people are not going to rent his place out and his livelihood is gone. So he finally finds a guy who he thinks can help. Freelance sanitary engineer, Dr. George Soper. (laughs) He is literally an epidemic hunter who specialized in hunting down typhoid. He would go into towns that had outbreaks of diseases, find the cause, and then eliminate the cause. So he gets to Oyster Bay, and he's like, mm, this is like a clear and shut case. I'm sure they just missed something, and like it's in the water or whatever. But he double-checks everything that the first crew did, and it all checks out. Hmm. So the game is afoot, and he starts looking at just anything else that could possibly cause it. So he also looks at the milkman, the gardener, the clam shucker, everything. But the only thing that changed right before the outbreak was the employment of one Miss Mary Mallon. That's the only thing that changed. And everybody else had been in employment at this house. Exactly. Okay. But he thinks that can't be right. He's like, she's the cook and you know, If she had it in this off chance, the cooking process typically kills the germs because you're cooking it and heating it and boiling it. And then he snaps his fingers and he says, God damn it, the peach ice cream. It doesn't get cooked. It's raw peaches and cold ice cream. It never gets heated. Are you poisoning me right now? Absolutely. (laughs) I just also like the understanding that there's this one odd variable at such an early age. Like what a great scientific like. This is the variable that's different. Yeah. No, absolutely. Like, cheers. Cheers mm-hmm. to that. So he starts to zero in on her. Yo, but bitch, people are cook like, your peaches. Mm-hmm. But people are like, no, it can't be her. She was one of the only people in the house who didn't get sick. How could she have it if she wasn't so- showing any symptoms? Mm. But he just felt in his gut. He was like, it has to be just something to do with her. So he starts to go to all the domestic work agencies in New York, and he's like, do you have any record of an Irish cook named Mary Mallon? And he pours over their records, making a map of where they sent her over the past few years. He starts interviewing people and families who have hired her and finds out that as early as 1900, people who have, who have been around her, who have employed her, have had typhoid fever outbreaks. Seven out of the eight households where she worked had outbreaks and at least like one or two people died. How is she not connecting the dots? Honestly, because it like, we'll get to this in a little bit, but in her mind, she's like, it literally can't possibly be me. Cause I'm not sick. And also I think it's important to note that like, she was not like a wealthy woman. She was making a lot more than people. So like, I wonder if she was just like, this is normal. It's normal for people to get typhoid and like not really connecting it, but that like, no, it's not normal for wealthy people to get it. You know what I'm saying? So like, I think she was just like, oh yeah, they got it. So like, I'm going to move on, go to a different family. Like, I don't want to get it. (laughs) So 
This is like when people are like, you're vaccinated. Why do you wear a mask? I know. I can still carry the germs. Exactly. (laughs) So, again, he's really piecing this together. He's like, oh, my gosh, I think I'm onto something. And then he gets a call. There's a wealthy family in Manhattan experiencing a typhoid outbreak. And he goes running. So the Bowen family, another wealthy Manhattan family, had hired her to work in their house on Park Avenue. That was my first grade teacher's last name. Bowen, really? Bowen. Interesting. That's the reason I ended up getting homeschooled. (laughs) She was terrible. (laughs) Um, But shortly after Mary arrived, one of the maids contracted typhoid. And soon it spread. And... uh, the only daughter of the Bowen family, young Effie, contracted it and she died. George Soper rushes in and he walks straight into the kitchen and says to Mary, look, lady, you've got typhoid and you're spreading it all over New York. Probably not the best way to start the conversation. No, maybe like, hey, can we sit down and have like some tea hey. that you don't make? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and... Mary immediately and understandably is like pissed and really defensive. She's like, how dare you accuse me of being a dirty typhoid spreader? She goes, I've never been sick a day in my life. And now you're saying that I spread disease. Do you know who I am? I'm the peach queen of New York, bitch. She didn't actually say that. Because it's the Big Apple. If she said that, it would have been confusing. Exactly. That peaches are Georgia's thing. They're Georgia's thing. They're like, we don't even know what this foreign fruit is. That's why she was famous. <laughs> and Soper says, no, listen to me. They've been doing some really interesting research in Germany, and they say that some people can have diseases and not know it or show any symptoms. He's talking about asymptomatic cases, but this had never been seen before. And like, Because we weren't able to research it. Yeah, and like... To her, this guy sounds like a lunatic. She's like, no, when you get sick, you get a fever. You show some sort of symptoms. That's that's how the world works. And she said, you know what? I know exactly what it is. This is because I'm Irish. And in her defense, it was a reasonable thought. There was a lot of anti-Irish sentiment around at this time. Like, literally, like, Irish need not apply. Like, really, like. First thing I wrote down on my paper was Ireland equals Canada as UK equals the US. Yeah. It's yeah. just this year other. And like she had a really good reason to believe that like he was just targeting her because she was Irish. And so she basically says, fuck you and your anti-Irish ass and like <laughs> get out of my kitchen. And Soper doesn't leave. He says, look, lady. I need this and I need it now. Your blood, your urine, and your feces. <gasps> Give me that poop, baby. So as you do when someone asks you for your poop, she takes a giant carving fork and chases him out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. That's the second woman this season that chased somebody out of the house with a knife. I Mary love Todd it. Lincoln did that. <sighs> And her employer, Mr. Bowen, he's shocked at the accusation. He's like, of course it's not you, honey. You're the peach queen of New York and we love you. But Soper isn't convinced and he is not done with her. Every time you say Soper, I think you're saying Oprah. And <laughs> I'm just replacing it in my head with Oprah. 
and he starts like stalking her all over New York. He's watching what she does, who she sees, where she goes, you know, how she conducts herself. (laughs) And he realizes after Mary goes to the bathroom, she doesn't wash her damn hands. And he's like, okay, this woman is wild. And also like, she did confess to it. He was like, do you wash your hands? And she was like, fuck no. And he's like, this is the problem. Like, so he's and like, that's okay. really uncomfortable. Especially Un- like if you're about comfortable. to, especially if you're about to make food, it's like super different. If you're just like, I'm going to go in and pee and I'm going to leave and like go out and garden. Right. But no, <laughs> this is, she's like, you're a- preparing food for strangers. Yeah. You shouldn't even a be touching the food with your bare hands. Like get yourself some gloves because you're a professional and B wash your damn hands. Wash your damn hands. Also, what's the indoor plumbing situation like though? I know they have bathrooms, but like it, how much of a hassle is it to wash your hands? Cause what I'm trying to visualize there is fl- water flowing throughout this whole house. Right. But is it the way that it was in Ireland? Cause I'm trying to picture like changing habits from like, I was born in a place where there wasn't flowing water and i was kind of poor to a place that there is running water but i'm not yet in the mindset of what it means to use running water exclusively well yeah she probably isn't because also again like she is not a wealthy person she works right. in wealthy houses and that's so what I'm to her it's like, not practice right or her habits if she had washed her hands after every time she peed or before every time she cooked as a poor woman might have been seen as wasteful. Yeah, it so, might've been. So I'm trying to like level out the playing field for her a little bit on like what exactly were her habits growing up versus what they should be in like a wealthy society. Yeah, no, absolutely. And also like at this point, it's like germ theory is kind of new. You can't see it. You can't see it. And I think to a lot of people in poverty, it kind of felt like, okay, now you're just making shit up to make me feel bad because I'm still poor. Still. Like, yeah, <laughs> it sounds really timely, but like Mary didn't believe in germs. She was like, that's not real. You can't prove that. And it's like, no, it is real. But like to her, I think to a lot of people at this time who lived in poverty, it just kind of felt like, no, like you're just discriminating against me because you're just adding this invisible thing that I don't know what it is like to make me feel bad. Mm. So there's a lot of there. This is the thing. This story is sometimes touted as like she was a monster end of story. And I think we're forgetting a lot of like the national tendencies, the nuance, the like the economic differences. Like there's a lot of stuff going on that affects this story. Oh, there's cultural like Irish shit. Yeah. There's poor. There's New Yorker. There's new science. Yeah. Like this is new. And, like, things people can't, like, I think now when there's things we can't see, scientists put them on the internet or they give us pictures or they give us slides of it that we can see on the news. At that point, it's just like, there's germs. And it's like, yeah, but show me. It's like, what the fuck is a germ? I don't know what that means. (laughs) I can't see it. Exactly. So... Soper is like, okay, this woman is wild. I have to put a stop to her shenanigans or she's going to kill more people. He finds out that Mary has a boyfriend who just so happens to be an alcoholic. <laughs> so he tracks this guy down at a local bar. He liquors him up. And very quickly, this guy is like, what? Mary? Yeah, I can get you to marry Malin. Of course. <laughs> like, come with me, buddy. 
And he lets Soper and a friend of his into their building to wait for Mary outside of her apartment. <laughs> so That's again, why we have the buzzing system now. <laughs> so again, let's look at this from Mary's perspective for a second. She comes home from a long day of work and finds the man who recently verbally accosted her at work at her house outside of her apartment. And again, he is yelling at her, asking her for her blood and urine and feces. She is angry. She's startled. She's a little scared. And she is feeling kind of betrayed by her boyfriend. (laughs) She tells him to leave. She's like, get the fuck out of here. And he does. Yet again, with no poop, not even a little pee. Give me that poop, girl. So he feels like he has run out of options. He needs to go to the New York State Department of Health and tell them his theory of this woman who is spreading typhoid and killing people. He lays out all of his evidence, the timeline of events, all the families who have been affected. The red string is on the goddamn board. (laughs) And they're like, Holy shit, I think you're right. We need to get this woman off the streets and into a hospital to see if it's true. So they send one of their best doctors out to help apprehend Mary. Dr. S. Josephine Baker. Stop it. I'm not kidding. (laughs) Her name is Josephine Baker. Isn't that crazy? What and how? (laughs) I know. What a fun name. Sarah Josephine Baker, but she went by Dr. Joe. So Dr. Joe rolls up to the Bauer Bowen's home. I can't even remember what the actual name is at this point. I wrote it two different ways. And she approaches Mary very calmly about the samples. She's a lot nicer. She's more discreet. But Mary has just had it with these people. And she slams the door in her face. She's like, get out of here. And Dr. Joe's like, okay, I guess we're going to do this the hard way then. And she comes back the next day, flanked by police officers with an ambulance waiting outside. And like a scene from a Scooby-Doo episode, (sighs) Mary takes off in the house. And then they run back and forth between the doors, all popping out at different places. Literally cue the Benny Hill song. And they're just running all over the house. She finally finds an exit, runs outside, and the police chase her for, one source said, three hours. (laughs) She could run a marathon in the time. An actual marathon. Until they finally catch her. Ironically, hiding in an outhouse. (laughs) That poo out. So she's still not cooperating. They wrestle her to the ground. They throw her in the ambulance. And Dr. Joe has to sit on her chest to restrain her. (laughs) She is transported to the Willard Parker Hospital where she was restrained and forced to give the samples. And the poop one and pee one is obviously a little harder to come by. So they had to make sure she wasn't trying to do anything sneaky. So for four days, she was monitored and not allowed to get up and use the bathroom on her own. They get the samples. They test them. And Dr. Soper was indeed correct. Typhoid right there in the poop. And basically every other fluid that was coming out of her body. They tested like everything. 
And he comes waltzing into her room like, ha, I told you you had typhoid. And she's like, I don't understand what you're saying. And he's like, look, don't worry, Mary. We just want to help you. And she goes, really? Because no one is explaining anything to me. This makes no sense. I'm not sick. And that lady was just sitting on my chest while I was being handcuffed in an ambulance. So, like, I don't feel like you have my best interest in mind. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to give it to you straight. I don't think that you meant to do this. But the fact of the matter is that you have been spreading typhoid around New York and getting people really sick, even killing some, because you have typhoid, even though you're not showing symptoms, and you don't wash your fucking hands. So now we know this. Let's figure out what to do to not let it happen again. I think we should remove your gallbladder. And Mary's like, what? Like, no, you surgery? In like 1900s? Surgery is like a death spell. No, it's exactly it. And she's like, I'm definitely keeping my gallbladder. Um, Also, again, I don't believe in washing your hands or germs. (laughs) (laughs) They're invisible. And she is just like horrified and terrified. And while she is just reeling from all this news and trying to get herself out of this surgery, this really dangerous surgery so first like oh by the way um i'm gonna write a book all about you and your disgusting poopy hands and it will be great and mary is just like okay you're bringing all this information to me and you're telling me you're gonna write a book about me no and she leaves slams the door and he later wrote it was so weird it was like she just didn't want to talk to me (laughs) He is not doing a very good job of, like, making his life, like, accommodating. No. And someone kind of described, they're like, I think he, I think it was, like, the history checks. They're like, he's kind of, like, Sheldon from Big Bang Theory of, like, not, just, like, not realizing that the way he's talking to people is really inappropriate and off-putting. And makes them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. When they're already in an uncomfortable situation. Exactly. So she refused the gallbladder surgery because, again, it's the early 1900s. Uh, it's pretty die? dangerous. Um, but because she refused the surgery, they're like, well, we can't just let you back out into the streets. They're like, you're a public safety hazard. So they locked her away. She is sent to a facility on North Brother Island on the East River to be quarantined. Because, like, we're at the point in human history where, like, we can diagnose contagious diseases but we don't have any solutions for them or like antibiotics yet. And I guess they're infections, not diseases, I guess is technically it. Uh, Emails. Potato, Um, potato. Potato, potato. And we don't have the antibiotics yet. So we don't have the solution. And so at the time they're like, all we can do is just separate these people from society. Like a leper. So they literally, exactly. They made a leprechaun on this spooky Island. Like, it was kind of crazy. What's that Matt Damon movie about that stuff? Uh, Shutter Island. Oh. That was Leonardo DiCaprio. You know how I have a problem with I that. I know. <laughs> well, they both have those round faces and kind of like they small do, but eyes. Shutter Island also really good. Yeah. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Oh. It's a scary movie. No. Because it's him and Mark Ruffalo, right? Mark yeah, Ruffalo's but it, it? I would say it's not scary. I would Ooh, say it's suspenseful. A, it's suspenseful. Ooh, I like that like, kind of movie. Because I hate scary movies, and okay. I think you would like this. This Ooh. is more like a trick of the mind. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Okay. 
thankfully though um the facility for her wasn't like horrible like we're not talking about like the asylums from this time period she has her own cottage on the island with a view of the city where she had a full kitchen gas heat they even gave her a dog to keep her company but she is lonely and they're constantly doing experiments on her and let's be clear she is not free to leave so like I don't care how nice the facility is like it feels like she, I mean, she's, she's in, a in prison. prison she's in she's prison. in prison for sure and so they're trying to figure out like why is she aimed asymptomatic like how do we get rid of the typhoid how did she get it like the running theory was like maybe her mom had it while she was pregnant with her and or, like how can we use her to make it better right so they're doing all this. But at the same time, they're ignoring other medical problems that she's having. Like, one of her eyes was paralyzed. And she's like, I need an eye doctor. And they're just like, "Mm, no. So this is not an ideal situation for her. And while she's locked up there, the story of her mysterious medical case was circling around. The newspapers are writing articles about her. They're referring to her as the living typhoid germ or the human fever factory. And, of course, eventually, Typhoid Mary. Cartoons of her are published in the paper, and she becomes this hated and feared figure in New York, like akin to, like, a serial killer. Like, why would she do this? And almost like it's her fault. But it really, at this point, it wasn't. She didn't know that those people think they think that she like purposefully did this right like she's the atomic bomb of typhoid that came to new york city right exactly and that's not what happened no it's not and it just you know at this point it's like she didn't know that she had done anything wrong but regardless she's getting really sick of this island and her isolation and the way that people are treating her in the media and all these medications that she's on and they're like you're clearly like don't know what you're doing and you can't just force me to live on this island for the rest of my life because of this thing that like I can't control it's like girl you could wash your hands but anyways uh (laughs) and like you don't think we can make you live on this island like we we can so she hires a lawyer and by that I mean William Randolph Hearst (laughs) hired a lawyer (laughs) for her in an exclusive deal so that he could get all the scoops. So he was like the main, he was like, I'm going to pay for everything, but I get, but to, write I get to write the paper. I get to write the stories. I mean, good, good on him. Yeah. Um, so he gets this lawyer for her and they start sending her samples to an independent lab and they were coming back negative because her typhoid was like coming in and out like sometimes she tested negative sometimes she tested positive it was really weird like i don't know how to explain it um but that means that like it's like okay so she's not positive all the time which might also explain why like she didn't get every single one of the family she met with sick like she didn't get everyone sick it was not you know what i'm saying it was like she was immune to it so she could have been coming into contact with it from other people and then getting it and then her body would fight it off. Right. And then she might get it again, but it was gone for periods of time. Exactly. So who knows what's actually going on? And then the lawyer finds out that he's like, hey, I see that you've documented that you have 50 more people around the state of New York with asymptomatic cases of typhoid. He's like, you haven't locked them up on North Brother Island. He goes, what's the deal? 
So the tide is turning a bit for Mary and people around New York are starting to kind of side with her. They're kind of flipping the switch. They're like, you know what? Maybe she didn't know what was going on. Maybe it's not her fault. And they're like, we think that's unlawful to keep this woman cooped up. So the new health commissioner, Eugene Porter, makes a deal with her. He goes, look, we'll let you out as long as you promise that you won't cook food anymore. That's her living. I know. And he goes, and you have to come in for routine testing and you have to wash your fucking hands. And Mary agreed. She said, okay. And after two years and 11 months of being isolated on North Brother Island, she is finally released. So she gets out and she's trying really hard to follow the rules. But this means that she goes all the way back to being a laundress, which is the worst job at this time. It's hard and smelly and you just get paid basically nothing. And she's constantly on the brink of poverty. I mean, in poverty, let's be clear. Like there's no brink here. It's like she is full on in poverty on the brink of just having absolutely nothing. Yo, go back to Brother Island and just let them keep you with your puppy. Right. Um, And she still has to go for testing all the time, just like her life sucks and she couldn't make a living wage because she couldn't cook and then so she's like all right i need to get some money so she tries to sue the health department for how they treated her it didn't go anywhere and then the last straw her boyfriend august dies of a heart attack and after two years of doing the right thing she just disappears no one hears from her for years wait where the fuck did she go So, in 1915, the health department is alerted to a typhoid outbreak at the Sloan Maternity Hospital. (gasps) What a bad place to bring disease. Mm -hmm. 25 people contracted typhoid and two of them died. This is shocking. This hospital has a reputation for being especially clean. Like, they really believe in germ theory and they really try hard to, like, get germs out of there. So the staff just couldn't figure out how this happened. So they call, you guessed it, typhoid detective George Soper. He walks in. He's looking around. He's like, everything's clean. Like, I don't understand. Hold on. Who is the cook here? And they say, oh, it's this delightful Irish woman named Mary Brown. And he's like, God damn it, Mary. (laughs) He runs to the kitchen to just to nab her and she's gone. Just like a candle in the wind. Catch me if you can. Exactly. So Mary. Leonardo DiCaprio pick. Mary is on the run again. But this time, they know exactly who they're looking for, and they catch her pretty quickly. I don't think she's as fast as she used to be. Uh, she is at a friend's house in Queens in a neighborhood named, I kid you not, Corona. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Listen. Yes. That is crazy. So they get her, and of course, now... They start working backwards to all the places that Mary Brown was working at the past couple of years. And they find out that she was working in hospitals, in restaurants, in sanatoriums. This bitch was cooking all over the eastern seaboard. And she's not allowed to cook. No. And then they found out that almost everywhere she had cooked, there had been typhoid outbreaks. So she was 
definitely still not washing her damn hands. And she's knowingly infecting now people she's now. she's knowingly because she fucking knows that this is a problem. And whether or not she believes it, she's disregarding what actual doctors and scientists have told Isn't her. Isn't this upsetting when people just completely disregard the facts? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So. Accurate. She is sent back to North Brother Island on March 27th, 1915. She would never leave. After a few years, she was allowed to take some day trips off the island. And then in 1925, Dr. Alexandra Plavaska. Great name. Mm-hmm. Came to the island for an internship. She organized a laboratory on the second floor of the chapel and offered Mary a job as a technician. She washed bottles. She did recordings and prepared glasses for pathologists. So now the quarantine isn't quite as bad because she has a purpose and she has a little bit more freedom than the first time. And Dr. Plavaska was really nice to Mary. She even let her come home to have dinner with her family. Of course, everything she touched was boiled right after she left. I mean, immediately. (laughs) Immediately. But... Dr. Plavaska was one of the first people to treat her like a person in a really long time. Mary was pretty active until 1932 when she suffered a stroke, which left half of her body paralyzed. Ooh. And then on November 11th, 1938, she died of pneumonia at the age of 69 after being quarantined on North Brother Island again, this time for 23 years. I guess bitch isn't immune to everything. Mm-mm. Overall, it's believed that she infected around 51 people and caused the death of three or four that we know about. Mm. But because she had aliases and people who may have worked, like she may have worked for off the books, we'll never really know the true effect of Typhoid Mary. And that's her story. (laughs) I guess we didn't have good contact tracing. (laughs) No. Contact tracing is like all the uh, rage. George was trying. He was trying <laughs> so hard. Actually, he did a pr- he did a pretty good job. It is pretty. He impressive. was kind of a shit person, but like I feel like he was doing a good job with like actually hunting it down and being like, oh my gosh, all of these families got typhoid, and she like after she started coming around, like <laughs> I get emails every single day from either my own school or my daughter's school that is like somebody in the building has tested positive for covid and anybody who has been in close contact with them for 15 minutes is quarantined oh my gosh and every day we get that email and it's like you have not been affected if you were affected we have contacted you directly whoa so it's literally one i mean people are dropping like flies this school year it's very upsetting but it's i mean they're trying to really do contact tracing yeah. So I get an email. It's like, how long were people around this kid? X, Y, Z, you know? Oh, my gosh. Oh, that's so stressful. It is stressful, but it's also important. And she's the type of person that we learned that from. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like the the benefits of her being around were like really important. Like she was a really interesting case study. I feel bad because she like was a person. 
But we that still then, don't like, understand non-symptomatic. I don't people. think we do. No, but we did. Um, they did find out in her autopsy it was in fact all in her gallbladder. So if they had removed the gallbladder, she probably it probably would have gone away. I don't even know what a gallbladder I don't does. Understand? Explain. Explain. I know that like you don't need it because I think my friend. I thought an appendix is what you don't need. I don't think you need either either of them or a liver. Or no, a, you need a liver or a pinky toe. Yeah, a, you don't need one. No, of the I two. think you need a pinky toe because it like the uh, balance. Uh, you can get rid of it. The really? Balance. Yeah, I feel mm. like. But then I know not a kidney. No, not a liver. One of your kidneys you don't need. Yeah, you only need one kidney. So you need one kidney, zero gallbladders, zero appendices, <laughs> and maybe a liver. <laughs> definitely <laughs> a liver. Definitely, All the doctors let us there's know. There's only one liver. You need it. I just know Alyssa Barbieri was born without a gallbladder. Isn't that crazy? Just didn't have one. It's evolution. <gasps> All right. Survival of the fittest? Sure. <laughs> I guess she can't get gallbladder sickness syndrome let's she can't get typhoid let's compare these two women in a segment we like to call just the two of us and some bacteria okay so this is an interesting one this is a weird one i don't like where do you want to start i want to start with the fact that they both had a very wide variety of skills and that is an interesting place yeah settled on one like in terms of Margaret, we're talking about like this vast ability to write in different ways. She wrote yeah. short stories and did operas and did poetry and did fiction and nonfiction and then was just like really good at this one thing. And I think Mary had that same set of skills where it's like, I am great at all of the housekeeping tasks, but cooking is my specialty. Yeah, absolutely. And she also, I think both of them knew what skills they could market. You know what I'm saying? Like, and yes. I don't think for Margaret Atwood, it was like quite as important because she's like, no, like I am a working teacher so I can be a writer. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But I think for Mary, it kind of felt like I am a working cook so I can just be a person because these are two people who have very different options in life. They are being Irish at that point, especially an Irish immigrant. It's not easy. It's a discriminated culture Mm -hmm. in New York City. And she was trying to make ends meet in the world she was living in. No, absolutely. And I kind of feel like, you know, I feel bad because I do feel like Mary was stuck in a lot of ways. Like she like didn't have a whole lot of options. And it kind of makes me feel like Mary is living in her own dystopian world that like Margaret's writing about. It's like Margaret's writing about like we could be back at the time period that Mary was living in. <laughs> yeah. We, like I agree. I think like I was thinking a lot about Offred and her life living yeah. in the Gilead period in Handmaid's Tales and then thinking about Mary being on that island for 23 years. Yeah. And it's like Yes, there actually was something that needed to change. But mm-hmm. the same thing was true in A Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. There is an environmental component where people yeah. had polluted the earth so much that human beings were coming, becoming infertile. And mm-hmm. now the issue was, like, obviously, men are becoming infertile, but they're, like, blaming it on the women, mm-hmm. of course. But it is the same thing happening. Like, yeah. let's sequester the women because there is this 
this pandemic, this epidemic that's happening in our society due to, pro you know, I don't know, it's so hard to blend it with science, but it is the same story. No, it absolutely is. And I feel like it's all coming back to, like you said at one point, Margaret liked to ponder the behavior of people. And that's what we're talking about at the end of the day is human behavior. What are we witnessing? What is changing? What is dangerous, you know, because Mary's behavior at the end of her story is really dangerous. She is not concerned with how she is moving about the world. Like she is actively harming people. And she I, is. and I feel like that's what Margaret was really interested in of like, what makes these people tick who are not concerned with the harm they're doing in the world? Mm. You know, because that happens a lot. And I think it's the basis of a lot of dystopian novels. And I think that's what Margaret often makes a point about in her own life. It's like, I'm sure like in this Handmaid's Tale society, it's like, no, 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 we're fixing a problem. Like we want the human species to continue. So this is why we set it up this way. Mm. And it's like, yeah, but your behavior is actively harming people. Right. Because like bitch was already married. Right. Like, like let her have babies with somebody else. Right. It's like you're just trying to overly control things. And like people are trying to overly control Mary. But this is one person versus all you know, like childbearing people, like all women at this point, like, you know, in right. Gilead. One one thing I found really interesting that I heard in an interview she did was she said that like growing up in the era of. Hitler really changed her ideas about what people can do Yeah, because when he was young, he wrote Mein Kampf and it said all the things he would do if he got in power and then he got in power yeah. and he did them. Yeah. So she actively believes that when people say things on Twitter, in political speeches, on campaign trails, that when they say it and people are like, oh, they're just saying that for attention. She's like, no, Words I, honestly, matter. I honestly believe that what these people say is if they have the power, they will do it. Yeah. And I think that is kind of, it's intrinsic to both stories because there is this power of disease that is unstoppable and yeah. uncontrollable. Like once it grips a community, the spread is almost like impenetrable yeah no it absolutely is like i kind of wrote that like it kind of feels like margaret is trying to spread like words and ideas like mary spread typhoid it's like but of course hers is more purposeful she's like really trying to like let people expand their minds as to what can happen when words and human behavior go unchecked like yeah. and it's like I like that you said that like in one of her books, she was like really emphasizing that, like bad people, like bad women exist, yeah. you know, because the fact of the matter in the world is that like bad people exist and that's the full range of humanity. And it's also very complicated, you know, like it's interesting that she brings up, you know, Hitler because he is this person of like, he's ultimate bad. He's what everyone references as bad. And then we talk about someone like Mary Mallon, who it's like, was she bad? It's like, I don't think she started out that way, but I also think that then she knew what she was doing and she didn't do anything to stop it because I think that she was like, no, 
that doesn't concern me, you know? And she like, and I think there was a rejection of a system. Also, let's be clear, a rejection of the system that had mistreated her. I was going to say that's a really important fact of also what's going around now with COVID. It's like, I think some people feel like the medical system has mistreated me. So like, why would I trust it? Because you shouldn't. I mean, if you are an Irish person living in New York in Mm -hmm. this time period, you have been mistreated Mm -hmm. and lied to in so many ways. So why believe when somebody yells at you in public for your fecal matter that that's what you should do? Yeah. Especially at this time period when women didn't like show their ankles in public and now somebody wants your poo. It doesn't make sense. Right. Like, so she is like, I can, uh, I can see where she wasn't willing to listen, but I can also see why she wasn't willing to listen. Oh yeah. Cause that's what, what is the show? The, um, murder podcast. It's like, stop being fucking polite. That's what gets you murdered. Yeah. My favorite murder. Yeah. And I listened to their coverage on Mary too. Like it, like they said, fuck politeness. Like you can't, if you're going to be a woman and exist in this world and be polite, you have a bigger likelihood of being murdered. Yeah, absolutely. And like, she had no idea what George Soper was up to. She's like, this man is attacking me at my work, at my house. He's (laughs) scheming with my boyfriend. Like what is going on? So she ran. I mean, the number one rule is don't let a person move you into a space where they want you to be. Yeah. You know, it's like if somebody's like, hey, let's get up and talk over here. No. Never go to a second location. Is the answer. Second location <laughs> is a no. It's a big fat no from me. Thank you. No, it absolutely so is. So I can see where Mary's coming from, where it's like she's a villain, but she's not a purposeful villain. No, I don't think she is. Like, obviously, she definitely was like making some huge mistakes later in her life because she was supposed to know better, but also like, like we're talking about, like, how do you fix a distrust, which we're, we're dealing with that so much right now. How do you fix distrust in a system that is flawed because it is made up of humans who are flawed? Right. Like, and that's what Margaret said as well about yeah. like, things like the Me Too movement. Like we want to think it's holier than thou because the Me Too movement was so important. But yeah. the whole reason it exists is because our system is broken. Absolutely. <sighs> yeah. And I also, I was thinking too about how Margaret, one of her big points too, was that money should not be the measure of all things. And it's one of the reasons our system is so broken because typhoid, they didn't really give a shit about it when it was going rampant in poor communities. Perfect. But as soon as it hit wealthy, rich people, they're like, oh my God, we have to do something about this. Hmm. George Soper isn't going into the crowded tenement buildings of Manhattan. He's not doing that. No. He is going into these wealthy families' homes because they have hired him because he is a freelance, you know, whatever, sanitation (laughs) engineer. Like, (laughs) but money should not measure all things because it, again, like, it is in our flawed world. It is a flawed measuring tool. And it's like, why do people like, you know, like Teddy Roosevelt have, why do they matter more than someone like Mary Mallon? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I think we really have, like, both are famous now. We both know their names. 
for different reasons. One of them's but not like carved on a mountain. Exactly. With Lincoln breathing down his neck. Yeah. <laughs> like a psycho. <laughs> like a George Soper. Uh, <laughs> but it's like, I think that these are the, I think that what everything that happened to Mary Mallon is something that Margaret Atwood was thinking about and contemplating. And she wanted us to think about. And I think that she succeeded in that. She did. I, I think she's done a great job at just presenting ideas. Yeah. Because she presents political, social, mm-hmm. um, gender, and economic mm-hmm. and environmental ideas in all of her novels. Yeah. And yeah. There, there's an interplay between those things, mm-hmm. which is why they're so hard to solve. You can't address one problem without addressing all the others, which is what makes activism so hard. Because if you're passionate about one thing, it doesn't help the other things. And then you can't Ugh. solve the one thing without the interlacing webs. That's it's It's exactly, I feel like, the purpose of her whole career is like how do we fix the system all of it because i yeah because i feel like she's doing that in all of her writing and everything like i'm not going to label myself as anything because then that puts me in a box and if i'm in a box i can't break out to look at the big picture right i and we do that all the time we put ourselves in boxes we put other people in boxes and it's like how are we going to get anywhere right? if we're like the end scene in Indiana Jones? We're all in our separate boxes. <laughs> right. Like- and it's crazy, too, because like I, we label ourselves, right, as a feminist oh, podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, right, how do you help feminism without helping socioeconomic problems? Mm-hmm. And how do you help socioeconomic problems without dealing with overpopulation? Mm-hmm. How do you deal with overpopulation without dealing with pollution? How do you deal with pollution without dealing with wealth? Like, yeah. there's such a, it's such a domino effect that can't, it, it has to be like a collective. Mm-hmm. And it's a very interesting thing that like Margaret was like ready to be like, this is an entire structure and I'm ready to talk about all of it. And Mary was like, please disconnect me from the line, please. I yeah. take me off your calling list. Exactly. Mm. So, so interesting. Well, do you have anything else? No, that's it. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. So, uh, you ready to toast? I'm ready to toast. Okay. Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? Today I want to toast the long lasting. Mm. I've, I've felt a lot of this recently in the last several years. Um, you know, my grandmothers have been passing away. Katie's grandmothers have been passing away and aging. Mm-hmm. And I just think long lasting women are so important and yeah. their stories and their experiences, mm-hmm. which I think it's Often it's easy to look at somebody like Margaret Atwood or Queen Elizabeth in their 70s and their 90s and be like, tell me your story. But like your own personal ancestry is just as fucking cool. Yeah. So just to long lasting women Mm. everywhere. Cheers. Cheers. I'm going to toast women who do better after knowing better, which unfortunately is not... (laughs) What Mary did. What Mary did. (laughs) Um, I, again, don't feel like she was as responsible in her early years. Like, you know, I don't think that she knew what she was doing earlier. But then we can put some blame on her for causing outbreaks and multiple deaths. Um, 
after she was released because she was given information and she didn't do better and she didn't wash her fucking hands. So (laughs) I just want to toast to people who are constantly trying to do better and learn from their actions because we never have it right. We just never do. Mm. There's going to be things that we say in this episode. I'm like, why the fuck did we say that? Whether it be two minutes from now or two years from now. But that's the whole point of learning is that you're growing and changing. You don't want to say stagnant. So to people who are trying to be better, be better. (laughs) All right. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? Okay. So I have a really serious confession. Ooh. Okay. I have never watched until recently a single episode of Dawson's Creek. Me neither. But it's before my era. I'm shocked for it you was because my era. it was your era. And That's I disappointing for you. I often pretend that I've seen it all. <gasps> like, I don't ever say. Like, yeah, Joey, sure. Yeah, I know all the characters. <laughs> like, I always say, like, oh, yeah, hmm, oh, I'm so excited it's on Netflix. But for the last two years, because of COVID, producer has not been traveling. And when he travels, I do things like rewatch Sex in the City or rewatch mm-hmm. Gilmore Girls or watch Friends or like something that is just like, I want to watch it alone. Not because he won't watch it with me, but because I enjoy it better by myself. Yeah. I think that is a really important distinction to make. It's not the producers like, I don't want to watch that girl show. It's that I would rather have a glass of wine and a cup of shredded cheese uh. <laughs> and watch and watch this damn show by myself. So last night he is in the last couple nights he's been away and I was like, "You know what? I'm going to do something absolutely new and just dive into Dawson's Creek for the first time." And I'm really liking it. <laughs> I'm multiple episodes in. I'm actually pretty disappointed that he got home today. <laughs> Cuz now what am I going to do? But I I think it's a good thing to find something that you should have done and didn't, and then just do it. There you go. And don't be ashamed about being late. Mm-mm. Who cares about being late to the Who game? Cares? Just be late to the game and do it. <laughs> That's perfect. I love that. All right. What are you doing? So, you know, how I recommended only murders in the building last week. Yeah. So then I was thinking about it. And I was like, you know, I haven't listened to like, a procedural like or whatever like crime podcast like one that only follows one story like serial and mm-hmm. i was like i want to find another one so i googled it i got some recommendations and i listened to the bear brook murders podcast it's 10 episodes it is so good it follows this case in new hampshire where four bodies were found in barrels in the woods they don't know who the victims are. They So they're like, how do we solve a murder when we don't even know who the victims are? And it was in the 80s this happened. So it follows like, I mean, and it takes some twists and turns. They end up going to like, one of the episodes is about a whole different case in California that seems totally unrelated, but it is related. And just the way that they like figure everything out is fascinating and it's not a huge commitment i finished it in two days so the bear brook murders it's really interesting i was 
not as into it when I first started it, but then it starts to take its twists and turns and it gets really fucking good. Nice. So, and, and I love it. So Bear Brook Murders, go check it out. It's from New Hampshire Public Radio. It's That's so exciting because <laughs> the one, the people that contacted us that are about to start Bad Women, it's about, it's an, like a retelling of uh, the Jack the Ripper cases <gasps> from like the female I love standpoint. That. I love that too. I can't wait for it to come out so we can promo it further. Absolutely. Ugh. Mm. But. You can find us everywhere. You can. We're on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook and all sorts of places. And we like you when you comment to us. We've been super busy lately with wedding and new job, but we swear Mm -hmm. to God, even if we haven't replied to you, we have read your comments and you are the greatest and the sweetest. We love our patrons Mm. the best. You're so good. We can't wait to send you a fall treat very, very soon. Yes. Um, And please... If you have a moment, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to show your support for the show. It means the world to us, and it makes us go up in the ratings. So that mm-hmm. would be great. But most of all, we want you to never forget that well-behaved women never wash their hands in public. No, they don't. <laughs> and they rarely make history. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye